This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Two years ago, Stuff added momentum to the Me Too movement here with a campaign urging people who'd suffered sexual harassment and abuse at work to come forward and they'd investigate. But not everyone in the media liked the idea. What do they drag a name front page in their zeal for clicks and it doesn't quite pan out to be true? McCarthyism, the reds under the bed thing, making accusations against other people, and some of it actually isn't stacking up. Yeah. Two years and almost 50 stories later, we talked to Alison Moore, the prime mover of the campaign and author of many of the stories that came out of it, and Dr James Hollings, who's spoken to other journalists working on the campaign and weighed up what it achieved and what it didn't. We also look at efforts to explain the part that climate change played in the summer drought in the north and summer floods in the south, while some in the media didn't try very hard at all. But first, we look at the collapse of what's been called a pillar of Australian journalism, which will also extinguish the jobs of some journalists here. How's work been since they uh, started, uh, the public started stop firing a few events? Oh, it's flat out, it's flat out, but, uh, you know, we'll do anything for Australia. These times call for desperate measures, so we're, we're working around the clock and that's just how it is. That was a worker at the Kimberley Clark paper mill near Adelaide telling a Channel 7 TV news reporter last Wednesday how they were stepping up for Australia in its hour of need, producing more toilet rolls around the clock to meet the needs of people panic buying over coronavirus in South Australia. Meanwhile, in the Northern Territory, the Darwin-based NT News was doing its bit. The tabloid, which describes itself online as a newspaper gone rogue living in the golden age of abuse, printed eight pages of cut-out-and-keep toilet paper with the paper's logo embossed on each sheet. Australia's Media Watch show on the ABC noted this week one single stockpiler in Sydney featured in the national news bulletins of all three Aussie commercial TV networks. Prepper Diane telling her story on 7. Lots of sauces, pasta, noodles... And on 10. Rices, drinks, muesli bars, heaps of noodles, five kilo bags of rice, dog food, cat food, canned fruit, snacks. While on 9, she claimed, I'm definitely not a doomsday prepper. Oh, really? But even the public service ABC alarmed Australians unnecessarily with an online news headline that read, Government has the power to forcibly detain and contaminate people with coronavirus. They meant detain and decontaminate, of course, but accuracy is everything in the news at a time of crisis. But the strange story of stockpiling toilet rolls was legitimate news too. Many Australians read much more matter-of-fact accounts about it from Australia's national news agency, the AAP, Australian Associated Press. After the retail giant Woolworths limited customers to four packs of toilet paper each, AAP reported the New South Wales Premier was urging people not to panic buy. People should just go about their daily business as usual, she told AAP, whose stock and trade is producing news that the rest of the media can use. But it won't be for much longer. Well, if you value reliable, independent sources of information, you're about to lose one and you probably didn't even know about it. It's Australian Associated Press, or AAP, and it will shut its doors in June after 85 years of quietly keeping you in the know on many stories you would have read and heard over the years. That was the ABC's Linda Mottram last Tuesday on the PM show, Australia's equivalent of Checkpoint, with sad and worrying news for Australian journalism, and some journalists there and some here as well. And Linda went on to explain why the impending demise of what the ABC called the news service you've probably never heard of but most likely read was big news itself across the Tasman. 
AAP is what's called a news agency or a wire service. It provides media organisations, big and small, including this one, with coverage of news and finance, sport, regional, rural affairs across the board. It is nothing less than a mainstay of Australian journalism and its loss could well mean that things you want to know about just don't get to see the light of day. The AAP is owned by, paid for and governed by the major newspaper publishers in Australia. It sells Australian news onto many publishers across the country and overseas. Its chief executive Bruce Davidson told staff that the business was no longer viable in the face of increasing free online content. Too many of our customers, he said, are relying on what's on Google and what's out there on Facebook. Now, when the AAP closes in June, none of the publishers there will be able to replace the service with any other that can cover news right around the country because there isn't one. Now, this is devastating news naturally for the 180 or so journalists who work for the AAP and around 30 online content editors who work here for its subsidiary PageMasters. Summing up the impact of this closure, the editor of the news website The Conversation, Misha Ketchell, said many people outside the thinning ranks of Australian journalists would have little idea that AAP was a media industry engine. AAP journalists are the unsung heroes of journalism. When I worked for the Sydney Morning Herald in The Age, I used to check my ropey shorthand of press conferences against the AAP and often unearthed embarrassing errors, sometimes ones that would have got us sued. AAP also regularly broke major news with coverage that would lead all the newspapers and TV news bulletins. Every honest journalist in Australia today, he said, should feel guilty about the way they've secretly relied on AAP. We almost never gave it enough credit, he said. Well, on the day the closure was announced, the Australian Press Gallery stood in silence to acknowledge their colleagues and Australia's Prime Minister and Leader of the Opposition honoured them too. It is a sad day today because I want to acknowledge the AAP journalists who were here. Um, the AAP will not be operating here anymore. And when you have such an important institution such as AAP coming to an end, in not just here, Mr Speaker, um, that is a, a matter of, of real concern. Today is a tragedy for our democracy. We thank you for your contribution over such a long period of time, holding us to account and informing the Australian people. Now, the closure of a national news agency owned and run by the big newspaper publishers might sound familiar to some here because it happened here back in 2011. The New Zealand Press Association, a cooperative news agency that was founded back in 1879, closed in 2011 because the publishers didn't want to pay for it anymore and they claimed it no longer produced the kind of news that they could use in an increasingly competitive and digital environment. The void was partly filled the following year when the AAP came across to set up its own agency in New Zealand, NZ Newswire, which supplied clients here and in Australia with New Zealand News that used to come from the NZPA. But with major newspapers here publishing all their news online for free, the New Zealand Newswire also struggled, and two years ago it closed. At that time, Tony Gillies, the chief editor of AAP, told MediaWatch there would be less news about New Zealand read in Australia as a result, and this week he told me the same will now happen in Australia after the closure of the AAP in June. Yeah, that's right, Colin. I think it's the depth of AAP's uh, news coverage that will be sorely missed here. Um, there are a number of media players here in Australia. It's not a bad size uh, market. However, you know, all of those media organisations have been relying on Australian Associated Press for um, their baseline coverage. So those people that are, you know, covering the courts and the politics and uh, and and doing it in such a uh, an unbiased and uh, uh, 
uh, way, um, that's that's now going to go. We AAP has been producing uh, about 350 stories a day, and that will cease to exist from uh, June 26 this year. And what will fill the void, if anything? I mean, that's a big question, Mark. It's Australians will miss, and New Zealanders will miss this source of source of news. You know, the last two days have uh, we've been overwhelmed by messages of support. Uh, I, I actually I can't keep up um, with my own accounts because of the uh, messages of support, not just from around Australia, but from right around the world. I don't think people sort of realised the. Um, extent to which AAP made its way or AAP content made its way into to journalism here. But when you see the, uh, the this outpouring of support... But, but in which case, Tony, in which case, so, you know, all these messages of condolence and support, I'm sure you must be feeling, well, thanks for that, but why didn't your organisation stump up the subscription fees that would have kept us in business? Absolutely. If only that support could uh, transfer over to subscription fees, um, that would be a wonderful thing. Not long after the announcement was made on Tuesday, you'd expect there to be widespread anger. Ten minutes after the announcement had finished and the question time had finished, um, they were straight back at their desks to work the file, continuing to report on the, on the stuff on the day. And that's what makes this whole thing sad. We've now got close to 200 exceptional media professionals, very well trained, about to flood the market. I think um, you know, maybe Australian journalists and publishers and broadcasters here will be the beneficiaries of that, but it's such a tragic day to have that to have that team broken up. Yeah, almost as if to illustrate what you were saying there, and one of the online stories I read about the AAP closing had a photograph of you in your office um, with your head down, looking like you're not having a great day, obviously, and the photo credit at the bottom is... AAP, one of your own photographers, took the picture. I haven't seen that. I've a little bit embarrassed by that. I try to, um, you know, I, I try to put on a brave face, but uh, it has been tough. Uh, I've seen a figure of about 180 odd journalists who will be affected by closure of AAP in June. Uh, that, that must include some of the New Zealanders working here, doing uh, content uh, editing online for Australian publications. There are 500 people actually involved in this. Um, so it's almost 200 journalists for the Australian Newswire. There's about uh, 100 photographers on top of that. The, on the Australian Newswire, and as a part of that uh, that body of people, about 200, um, I have a few uh, people from New Zealand working for us there. But on top of that, AAP has a number of um, other businesses, a press release distribution business and an editorial production uh, unit as well. And it's that editorial production unit that does have some uh, New Zealand staffers in it. The uh, the production unit, while it will close under AAP, there is an emerging entity um, afoot now. So uh, there will be opportunities for those people that are already in those roles to perhaps carry on. So the production entity you referred to there, was that the company known as Page Masters? That's correct. Mm-hmm. And now, the uh, journalism union uh, boss in Australia said the demand for AAP's news is still there across Australia. It's the market system in that country that's failed, he says. And he pointed the finger directly at Google and Facebook, the tech titans, you know, stripping out the income from the media business. Is he right about that? I think it's a fair point. There's been serious disruption all over the world all, uh, uh, you know, in media as a result of this. The publishers here... Uh, and the broadcasters have simply argued those tech titans 
have an unfair advantage in that they're not you know, paying the required taxes that they have to pay, the publishers have to pay. Uh, they're not bound by the same uh, content rules that they are. It's, it's a very, very difficult situation. We're, we're bearing the brunt of um, that disruption. This latest um, tragic loss of now AAP, surely that must be enough of a signal for the Australian government here to actually stand up, take notice and take action. Tony Gillies, the chief editor of the Australian Associated Press, the National News Agency of Australia, which this week announced it would close in June. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we briefly mentioned how the conviction of Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein for sex crimes was one of few stories to push coronavirus into second place in the news bulletins worldwide. It was described as a milestone moment for the Me Too movement, which sprang from the outrage over his conduct and how it had been concealed for so long. Two years ago this week, the most comprehensive media campaign investigating sexual harassment and abuse at work here in New Zealand kicked off. The prime mover of it was former broadcaster Ali Moore, an executive producer at Stuff, who launched it online like this. And I just got sick of waiting, so I've set it up myself with the help of some of New Zealand's most respected investigative journalists. And from tonight, you can have a voice. You can contact me directly via direct message on Twitter, by private message on this very Facebook page, or by a dedicated phone line or by email. Every survivor who contacts us will have access to our triage system where we'll help you get the help that you think that you need. And by telling your story, you'll be able to make a difference. Two years and almost 50 stories later, Media Watch's Hayden Donnell asks what's been achieved with this campaign and what lessons the media can learn from it. When Stuff launched its Me Too NZ campaign in 2018, there were some predictable objections. Cartoonist Al Nisbet confusingly labelled it a witch hunt after men. At Newstalk ZB, Mike Hosking spent an editorial branding the project tasteless and tacky. A lot of the Me Too campaign is not about illegal activity, serious sexual assault, things you end up in court for. It is about hearsay, rumour, innuendo, scuttlebutt, sleaze and gossip. It's about alleged pinched bums, wolf whistles and tacky one-liners. Not that any of those things are remotely acceptable. They're not crimes. And they're not front-page news. His view was backed up by PR advisor Janet Wilson, who thought the situation was analogous to the Red Scare. We're getting into what used to happen in the 1950s mm. um, in America with the American, uh, the un-American activities. Oh, McCarthyism, yeah. the Reds under the bed thing. It later emerged that Wilson was acting as an advisor to the law firm Russell McVeigh, embroiled in its own sexual misconduct scandal. But were these commentators' fears founded? The international academic journal Journalism Practice recently published a study on the first two years of the Me Too NZ campaign by Massey University's journalism program leader, Dr James Hollings. He spoke to many of the reporters involved and found that instead of being gung-ho purveyors of sleaze and scuttlebutt, the team was significantly limited in what it could report and often had to go to painstaking lengths to bring its stories to publication. Reporters worked hard to balance the expectations of their sources with the limitations of New Zealand's strict defamation law and a culture of silence surrounding sexual harassment. Welcome, Ellie and James, to Media Watch. Thank you. Kia ora. Thank you. 
Now, it's almost exactly two years since Me Too NZ launched on Stuff. Can you just remind us, Ellie, what was the spark for that campaign? The Weinstein allegations uh, in the October previously, it had opened a window for women worldwide to have their voices heard. I waited a bit and I saw New Zealand women, while they were joining in online, didn't really have an opportunity to tell their stories And it just seemed crazy to me that we wouldn't have the same kind of problem with sexual harassment in New Zealand workplaces. Um, Funnily enough, the criticism that was pointed at us after we launched, um, some of it uh, seemed to question that as if New Zealand was this magical unicorn of a place that had no sexual harassment or didn't have a problem or wasn't likely to have a problem. Yeah, but obviously, actually, while you were launching, I think it was before you were launching, there was uh, sexual harassment uh, allegations about Russell McVeigh that was swirling, so you were kind of launching in the middle of that. That was the final straw for me, if you like. I'd been thinking about it over the summer. Um, I had been encouraged by colleagues and mentors in Australia to do a similar investigation to one that was taking place over there. And then when um, Newsroom published the Russell McVeigh story, it just made up my mind in an instant, and I pitched it to Sinead Boucher at Stuff, who immediately said yes. Well, that's interesting that they were so quick about it. I guess it was just this incredible worldwide global story at the time. But it wasn't popular with everyone... Uh, I think Mike Hosking accused it of, of you of running a tasteless, tacky campaign. Al Nisbet sort of said that it was a witch hunt. Oh, I just thought those were ill-thought-out and ridiculous, so they didn't affect me much. Mike Hosking, he said we were likely to be concentrating on bum-pinching, as if that's not assault. That's assault. Uh, so I think there was a lack of understanding among some commentators, male and female, as to what sexual harassment actually looks like. And I saw that as part of our job, actually, right from the start, to make it crystal clear to New Zealanders, including them, what sexual harassment actually looks like. Now, we're two years into the campaign post that criticism. James, you've studied the campaign pretty intently and you've written a paper about it now, how accurate would you say Hosking and Nisbet were? I don't think there's any real credence to their claims or their concerns, if you like. I mean, fair enough that they raised them. I mean, talking to the journalists who worked on the campaign, they all raised that issue spontaneously. They were quite defensive about it, if you like. They wanted to show that they hadn't done a witch hunt. And in the way they proceeded and to investigate each claim thoroughly before publishing anything, I think they really put the lie to those claims yeah, it's it's such an interesting thing because you did also have this incredible duty of care to these survivors in, in a way that you might not have when you're reporting other types of stories. So maybe first of all, can you talk about exactly how you approached that relationship with the survivors to make it easier for them, recounting what's probably, in most cases or many cases, the worst moment of their lives? Every survivor that gets in touch with me, uh, in our first conversation, I spend some time talking to them about the reporting process uh, and how difficult it can be and how we um, want to make sure that we re-traumatise them as little as possible. Because for a survivor telling their story over and over again, which you have to do when you're in the middle of a, a stringent journalistic investigation... 
it's important that they know what they're in for right up front. Um, it's also it was important for them to have a good think about what they were expecting from the process. Some people came to us almost forgetting that we were journalists. You know, some women just wanted to tell their story that they'd held, you know, in the deepest part of their soul for 20 years and told no one about, and they just wanted to tell somebody. And, you know, you had to gently remind them that we were what we were there for. Uh, and to um, you know, to explain to them how real it could get at the end. For example, with the higher profile stories we've worked on, um, the survivors needed to be ready to testify in a defamation trial. And sometimes that includes signing an affidavit. But then, James, you also mentioned that everyone that you spoke to was really weary of this witch hunt criticism. How did you apply real objective journalistic standards to this while maintaining a duty of care to the survivors? Well, the defamation law in New Zealand um, means we must. You know, I, I have regular contact with our defamation lawyer, uh, and he often sends me and the team back to square one <laughs> on stories, and we, you know, have to redo stuff until it reaches a, a publishable level, legally and journalistically. Um, so you almost have to be more stringent on these stories than you might on other stories. Yeah. So is that something that you sort of verified through your report? Defamation law in New Zealand is really draconian, effectively. I think it's one of the great shames about New Zealand at the moment is the stranglehold that some aspects of the, of the legal culture we have have on journalism. That's, a, I think, still a big problem in New Zealand, and it's came through in these in these stories, is that journalists couldn't just report on a case in someone's story uh, without literally having to prove to a, a legal standard that this was this was true. Um, and I think that's too, bar, too high a bar to cross, and it's certainly not a bar that we hold our politicians to in the way that defamation law works. Yeah, and can we so, separate those mm. things out? So, like, how, how much of a, a hindrance was defamation law to this campaign, or has it been? It's forced us to move in a different direction, so um, we, when we started, probably imagined uh, being able to break a number of big stories where the perpetrators were named. And that hasn't been the case. Uh, instead, we've been able to uh, thoroughly examine some of the overarching issues with sexual harassment, which I think actually in the end even though it wasn't necessarily planned like that, is, has been a good thing because we've been able to really dig into the systemic problems. Um, NDAs is one of them, for yeah. example. And that's the second one, isn't it? Because you, 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 I think the report mentions it too. You know, you uncovered what is called a culture of secrecy around sexual harassment. And NDAs is part of that, right? So... so our organisations essentially covering up. There are several extremely high-profile people, perpetrators, whose stories we haven't been able to run because of non-disclosure agreements. I need to point out that sometimes non-disclosure agreements are all, or the payment that goes along with, are all a survivor is likely to get as a result out of their complaint. But there is absolutely no doubt that it is harmful to that they are harmful to society because they allow uh, a perpetrator who sometimes um, is guilty of m multiple uh, victimizations 
it allows them to stay in the workplace and nobody is any the wiser and they can go on to victimise other people. So I think one of the most uh, sort of mind-boggling ones of these that you came across was actually the Law Society, which <laughs> got a super injunction to stop you publishing sexual harassment, a story about sexual harassment there. About a, we, think it was the, we think it was the first one in New Zealand. This one was a an email that was uh, sent in error to a young law student uh, and from the Law Society, and it contained details of sexual harassment by a member, a lawyer. The Law Society got a an injunction not only on the publication of what was in the email, um, but they got the super injunction part. Sorry, this is complicated, but the super injunction part meant the existence of the original injunction couldn't even be mentioned. Yeah, and we fought for months to have that overturned. And you did? Yes, we did. There's actually something that, James, you mentioned in your report, which is that this campaign also took a real toll on journalists and the journalists who reported these stories. What did they tell you? Um, well, one of them particularly mentioned that put a lot of emphasis in the campaign on looking after the survivors, but there was nothing in place for us with the words used. This is not an uncommon story in journalism, that journalists are effectively often first responders to disasters, crises. They see a lot of the sort of things that ambulance staff, police and so on see. They talk to people who are ter in terrible moments of their lives, and that has a a secondary sort of traumatisation effect, if you like. I think you mentioned mm. that one, one journalist needed counselling. Is that yeah. something that stuff could have offered, sort of counselling sessions to people who needed it? That was offered. I can only talk from my perspective, and I would always um, back members of my team who felt um, that way. I'm not, you know, decrying that point of view at all. Um, I personally didn't feel like that, and I'm still... Uh, I mean, I have different team members now, and we're still at it, you know, I'm still at it every day. I actually, can, if I can talk personally for a moment, this is going to sound a bit weird, I found it healing having had my own instances of sexual abuse in my childhood. Through the hundreds of women that I've talked to in the last two years, I was finally able to reconcile with myself that it wasn't my fault because I've spent a lot of time, many, many hours, telling them, hundreds of them, this was not your fault. It made that connection for me. Where to from here? Is there a chance that any of those more high-profile NDAs, any of those stories will get published, for instance? I live in hope. There's a couple of really big stories that are moving through the courts. In two cases, we have managed to support survivors to lay criminal charges, and those trials will be coming up this year. There is, you know, and all of that, of course, is covered by suppression at the moment, but um, it will come out, hopefully, eventually, once suppression is lifted. There are some major stories involving big names where the survivors are still considering whether they want to go public. And that is a big decision for them to make. To become that person that puts their name and image out there, making accusations against a a public figure in a, a society as small as New Zealand, um, that's a big deal. Um, and that's one of the things, the size of our, our workforce in New Zealand has been one of the, the other things that has held us back, if you like, um, because people just 
um, don't trust that they'll be able to work after they make these public accusations. Well, uh, I'll be watching with interest. Thank you very much for joining me, Ali and James. Thank Thank you. you. That was Ali Moore, executive producer at Stuff and the leader of its Me Too campaign, which was launched two years ago this week. And there she was talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell, who also spoke to Massey University professor of journalism James Hollings, the author of an analysis of the campaign called It Does Become Personal, Lessons from a News Organisation's Me Too campaign. And that was published recently in an international journal called Journalism Practice. And you can hear more of what they both had to tell Hayden about all that and also the her- on Sunday's scoop last weekend by investigative reporter Matt Nippet, which revealed the gap between the pay of men and women presenting programmes at TVNZ. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we looked at how panic buying broke out in Auckland the night the country's first case of coronavirus was confirmed there, and that was then widely covered by the media. And last Monday, Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB wasn't impressed. If you panic shopped, get a grip on yourself, grow up and be more informed. Panic shopping when we have one bloke getting better in an isolated room in a hospital is as embarrassing as a headline designed to get clicks. And though Mike Hosking didn't mention it by name, the boldest headline by Miles was in ZB's sister paper, The Weekend Herald. Pandemonium, it said. The Prime Minister even criticised the newspaper sensationalism, and Mike Hosking backed her up. For the Prime Minister to call out newspapers, for that's the word she used, newspapers, should be to the embarrassment and shame of those who work in those newsrooms. This is not a time for clicks and noise and hyped-up BS. It's a time for fact and information. We, of course, have to carry a level of responsibility ourselves, and having seen those headlines myself, I at least had informed myself to a level that I know a lot of what I was reading wasn't true. And if it was true, didn't need to be delivered in the frightening, salacious way it has been. Hence, I didn't line up Saturday morning to panic shop. And Mike Hosking is right to say that that was a time when the facts really counted. I spent the better part of last week on this program trying to deal in fact, not hyperbole. Not scaremongering, not clickbait. Many others in the media showed no such inclination, professionalism or restraint. I presented facts, figures and reality based on what we know, not what we're guessing or freaking out about. But in the same show just minutes later, Mike Hosking said this about the drought in the north. Uh, Whangarei, driest summer since World War II. I just want to know who did they blame after World War II? Who did they blame for the drought then? Because there was no climate change, so who were they blaming? What was the headline? Long, hot, dry summer? Not dissimilar to the one we're having at the moment. Long, hot, dry summer. No climate change then. There is now. Who do we blame? Such a confusing world in which we live, isn't it? News in a couple of moments. Well, the world can be confusing, but Mike Hosking there was only adding to confusion by wondering aloud on the air about hot summers that were 70 years apart and what might be to blame before climate change was a thing. But there are journalists with a grip on the facts who could help him with this. Indeed, there's one at his very own organisation. A fortnight ago, New Zealand Herald science writer Jamie Morton wrote a big piece about the drought in the north under the headline NZ's Big Dry and Climate Change. What's the link? It began like this. Amid one of the biggest dry spells in New Zealand history, many people have been asking whether we're seeing climate change in action. 
The simple answer to that, he said, was yes, to an extent. Long-term patterns are showing how drought events like this one are becoming increasingly more likely to play out under climate change. So rather than hark back 70 years, he looked into research into a drought of 2013. Jamie Morton reported that Victoria University scientists have modelled this and concluded that the 2013 drought was twice as likely to have occurred today because of those human influences. Meanwhile, in the south recently, it was heavy rain that was the big problem. Last Tuesday, the Otago Daily Times reported a senior climate scientist at the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research, Dr Daniel Collins, is saying that Southlanders were affected by the recent severe weather and had experienced firsthand the intensifying effects of climate change. Detecting climate change is like eavesdropping on a conversation in a noisy bar. And as time goes by, the climate change signal will get louder and more obvious. Meanwhile, on the same morning as Mike Hosking was saying that things were dry back in 1945 and 46 in the north and it was all a bit too confusing, TVNZ's breakfast show had meteorologist Georgina Griffiths. We didn't have the heat that we have now in the summer of 1945-46, those drought war, the war drought, and we just didn't have that heat. And, really important to note, 2019 was very dry for the Upper North Island, so we're mm. actually, it's been 15 months of dry up here. So it's compounding. Yeah, and so it's not just been summer, it's actually been the driest January to July last year. Dr Griffiths went on to tell TVNZ's breakfast show that climate change was affecting these patterns, this was the new reality, and we need to plan for it. Meanwhile, Mike Hosking over on News Talk ZB was muddying the waters on climate change, which seemed to bolster the climate scepticism of some of his listeners who were getting in touch. Why worse drought since WW2? Is it possible there was one worse before that? Looks like selective reporting. Leo, I wouldn't run that line too much. I mean, um, there probably was one before WW2. The point was it's been a long time since it's been this dry. My point being, when it was this dry in WW2, what did they blame? Because they didn't have climate change to blame and we leap all over it, don't we? Well, as we've just heard, there are journalists who are all over this too, usually channelling the experts who are all over the evidence on this complicated issue and trying to communicate the facts that Mike Hosking said earlier he valued so highly when he was criticising media coverage of coronavirus and the prompting of panic buying. Well, that's all we have for you from the Media Watch team for this weekend, but we'll be back again at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with more on the media in Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again at the same time next weekend for Media Watch here on RNZ National.